you know, by the time I was six, my father went to prison for kidnapping and sexual assault on a prostitute. My mom met him when he was out on bail for capital murder in 1980. She went to the cops and said, I robbed her. I told the cops, yeah, I took the money out of her pocket, but that's because she owed me $200 and wasn't trying to give it to me. Turns out that's confession for robbery. They let probably me and 20 of my friends out of prison that summer. And by the end of that summer, every single one of us was back in jail with a new charge or wanted by someone. I'm leaving the bank with the money and I'm walking down the sidewalk past the other stores and I get in the getaway car and now we drive away. We got to get to 93 South. We got to get going south and going to Massachusetts, they can't cross state lines. I know this because I had just watched the movie Public Enemies, which became my favorite movie of all time with Johnny Depp, where they had to, say. they couldn't cross state lines back then. About <laughs> so this big, right? And um, I tucked it in between my butt cheeks. He's soaking wet and he just has this look of devastation on his face. And I go, hey, pick. And he goes, looking at me, he's like, I go, hey, man, I don't know about you, but I had fun today. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm going to be talking to uh, Patrick McKean. And we are going to, he actually just got out of prison a couple years ago. Uh, he's a career criminal, been in and out of prison, did most of his time in the, uh, in federal and state penitentiaries. And so it's going to be an interesting interview. So check this out. So tell me, hey, tell me, so where, where were you raised? I was raised in Vermont. I lived, I was born in Burlington, Vermont, January 1st, 1986. I wasn't the first baby born that year. I was the third actually. And it was C-section. So I don't know if it really counted. My mom had like 50 hours of labor, you know, but I growing up in that era in the middle of nowhere in Vermont, it was work hard, party hard. And that's exactly what my parents did. You know, by the time I was six, my father went to prison for kidnapping and sexual assault on a prostitute. The crazy thing is, is that and, and you know, it, it wouldn't really surprise you to kind of see a charge like that coming with the man when my mom met him when he was out on bail for capital murder in 1980. So he so winds up the, going to prison. He had a good role model. And this is the crazy thing is like I, I moved up here to take care of him and he lived for nine months after I moved up here when I got out of prison. And he told me as he was dying that he committed the murder he got away with and was not guilty of the kidnapping and the sexual assault. And, you know, he always said that it was his way of getting found guilty. of he's, He always found it uh, karmic that he gets found guilty for the crime that he didn't do and gets away with the crime he did do, right. you know, but after he went away, it like ruined my mom's whole American dream thing. She was already a hard drinker. So she just went, she doubled down and just put all her effort into work. And then when she wasn't in work, put it into drinking. So by the age of six and my little brother's four, we're already raising ourselves. We moved to New Hampshire, Laconia, New Hampshire in 95. So I was nine. My little brother had just turned seven. And from the moment we moved to New Hampshire, we never had a babysitter. We would go to school at, at we would go to school, go home, be home alone, running around the streets, doing whatever we wanted till mom got home five, six o'clock at night. 
Right. By the time we were like 11, 12, she's at the Elks Club every single night till 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night on a school night. Just comes home verbally abusive to the kids, to the kids, to me and my brother. And, um, you know, it was a real bad environment. So I just being an impulsive kid, I always did whatever I wanted. I had to teach myself how to do everything. I had to teach myself how to do the dishes, how to clean, how to cook, um, everything that a parent would normally be doing. I had to do for myself and my little brother. What did she do What for a living? I mean, she's been a professional human resources recruiter her entire life. Um, not her entire life, my entire life. Uh, but she started long before I was born and she's continued doing it. So she finally met her boyfriend in 98, which just increased the drinking even more. So I'm 12. My little brother's 10. They're at the Elks every night. They're out at friends' houses just getting drunk every single night. That's what they do. So I'm finally dabbling in drugs. First time I smoked weed was just digging around my mom's room and I found it and I smelled it. And and this is what's funny about, you know, I, I graduated there. You're supposed to say no to drugs, all that. But the first time I smelled it, the first thing I wanted to do was just smoke some. So that's how I got started with drugs. Literally, I got myself started in drugs. As I started getting older and acting up more at home, my mother was convinced that it was my friends getting me into doing the wrong things and making the wrong choices when it was really my impulsive nature. I want instant gratification. Whatever I want to do, I should be able to do anything, any authority figure, whether it's a cop, a teacher, a parent, a grandparent, anything an authority figure wants to tell me to do. I'm not trying to hear it, I'm trying to do my own thing. Well, you don't th think her drinking? Oh, her negligence even... played a, a huge thing, a, a huge aspect of the way I turned out because, you know, if you're not home to discipline your child and when you are home, you're drunk and your behavior is not conducive to teaching a child anything like. Right. What 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 can a drunk parent tell a child to do that the child is going to think, oh, that's a great idea. Let me listen to the drunk person in the room. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, so, things could have turned out either. They could have turned out the same way regardless. But, you know, I can't help but think that that probably definitely, you know, contributed at the very least it contributed. Oh, absolutely. It, it definitely played a big part. The fact that my father wasn't around played a big part, you know, but, you know, she didn't she went out of her way to help me get in the system. The first time I was ever arrested, it was for threatening to kill the school security officer because he was trying to stop me from leaving the cafeteria. But when I'm sitting at the police station, my mother goes, oh, he pulled a knife on his little brother yesterday. I want him charged for that, too. Um, I never pulled a knife on my little brother. She walked into the room and I was showing my brother a, a knife I had found in the drawer. And she came in, took it away from me, never said anything else about it until we're at the police station the next day. And all of a sudden, now I've pulled a knife in a threatening manner on my little brother. So now I have another charge on top of the first criminal threatening. And she's doing it because she doesn't want me in the house. Right. How she old made you? the house. What's that? How old were you? This was 2000, so I was 14 at this point. So she made the house such a toxic environment that I picked up a, a bunch of stupid little misdemeanors like petty thefts and stuff, the type of things that a 14-year-old kid will get arrested for, nothing serious, nothing violent. So 
she, I wind up going to court for it, and I plead guilty to three misdemeanors, two resisting arrests and a criminal trespass. And when I plead guilty to these things, I plead guilty to go to a juvenile placement. That's how much I don't want to be in this house anymore. I choose to go to the most secure residential placement for juveniles in the state of New Hampshire next to the Youth Development Center, which is Juvie. I go there for eight months. I get out. I'm out for a couple months, and me and my mom are still not getting along. Nothing's changed at home. I'm back to skipping school, doing whatever I want, because I was always smart in school, but I never felt the need to prove that I knew the material to the teachers. So I never did homework. I would show up and take tests. And other than that, I'm just causing havoc in the courtroom. Right. So uh, not the courtroom, the classroom. I'm wow. sorry. That's how long it's been since I've been in a classroom that the, the most recent special room I've been in has been a courtroom. <laughs> so uh, I wound up going to juvie because I wasn't listening to my mother and I was skipping school. That, is, that was a violation of my probation. They send me to juvie till I'm 17 years old. In the state of New Hampshire, the age of minority is 17. If you do something wrong at 17, they're charging you as an adult. So I go to juvie, spend 10 months there, get out. And this juvenile justice, the juvie, the juvie system they have in New Hampshire is so corrupt. All they did was beat the hell out of us kids. All of us got the shit beat out of us. Some of, some of the kids there have been sexually abused physically emotionally abused and it happened for decades and decades at the moment over a thousand people are currently suing the state of new hampshire for covering up all the abuse that happened to kids in the juvenile justice system from the inception of ydc as an institution yeah in, in um, florida there's that school in florida where they found you know like 50 or 100 kids that they were killing them and burying them Oh, wow. Yeah. And this, now this was 50, 50, 60 years ago, but they're still digging up the bodies. Wow. Yeah. It was, you know, it's this sexual abuse. Beating. And then, of course, the kids, when the parents would, if the parents did show up and say, hey, my son was supposed to be here for three years, he's gone. They say, hey, he ran away. He's a bad kid. He got away. And oh, wow. Just, you know, then they bury, then they dig him up, you know, 20 years later. Yeah, it, they they weren't killing kids, but they have it. It's just systematic abuse of children, basically. And now this is my first interaction with people that are actually have a criminal mindset. There's kids in there that were selling crack, doing stuff with guns, sex crimes, stuff like that. All of a sudden, I'm surrounded by people that have a criminal mindset. At this point, I was a delinquent. I didn't have a criminal mindset. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go do this to make money illegally or that to make money. I wasn't on that at all. So I do my YDC time. I actually escaped twice. Um, don't get far either time. One time I just barely made it over the property line. But they finally tell me, they go, you got a couple months left. If you try to escape again, we're going to send you to uh, jail when you get out. When you turn 17, you're going to go to jail. We're charging you as an adult. So I immediately stopped trying to escape. I get out a few months after that. And um, back at home, me and my mom aren't getting along. I'm skipping school. I literally only have like a credit and a half to graduate. I'm not trying to finish school or anything. I'm just trying to do what I want. And she kicks me out of the house. Now I'm kicked out of the house. I have no ID, no job. And 
now I'm running around committing crimes so I can feed myself, so I can have some money in my pocket. And my first check, my my first charge was actually for forgery. A buddy of mine who was letting me stay with him was getting evicted. He was working at a job site, stole some checks from the owner. And me not being having a criminal mindset thinks to myself, well, if he writes the check to me and I sign it and bring it to the bank and they give me cash for it, I'm not committing forgery because I didn't actually write the stuff on the check. <laughs> <laughs> So I go cash two of these checks. One was for like 380, which I kept $60 of and gave the rest to my buddy so he could put towards rent. And then once that one worked, we did we went big on the next one with $1500 and I gave him like 9. He got caught up on rent and everything. And um a couple weeks after that, they the cops are looking for me. They want to talk to me about it. And now I'm getting investigated for other stupid things. There was like an attempted burglary. And then it, it all culminates at the end of the summer when I physically reach my hand in a woman's pocket and take $200. She went to the cops and said, I robbed her. I told the cops, yeah, I took the money out of her pocket, but that's because she owed me $200 and wasn't trying to give it to me. Turns out that's confession for robbery. <laughs> right. The moment, the moment you vo volunteer that you physically took money from somebody that was trying to stop you it doesn't matter if they owe you money or not um you've committed a robbery why did she owe you the money uh, you know i can't even remember anymore you know probably something i i think i had given her a tv from a burglary or something like that i can't remember for the life of me there's been so much crap i've done over it's the a years bad, a bad situation all the way around yeah so i wound up getting 18 months in jail i get out i'm 19 years old and the problem was, is the last six months in jail, I could have been out in a year. I did 17 and a half months. I got out two weeks early just because they were tired of dealing with me. Um, right. I was just in there raising hell, being oppositional and doing whatever the hell I wanted. So but, but I wanted up. A, this is a, a um, this isn't a juvenile jail. No, this, this is, is an adult, adult prison, jail. right? Or is it jail? Yeah. This is a county jail. This is Belknap County Jail. Okay. So my last like six months there, I was there with um, pe several people who came to later on become very, very good friends of mine. They had already all been to prison. They're all in their early 20s. It was Peter O'Neill, James McNeil, Jimmy Flanders were the main ones that had all been in prison already. So I'm learning everything I need to know about prison, especially New Hampshire State Prison, because they've all been there. And that's the next natural progression is to go to state prison. So I get out on probation and I have no intention on doing anything right, but I'm not really doing anything wrong either. How old are you and now? 19. Okay. Now I'm 19. I've already gone. I've already done juvenile placement, juvie and jail and 18 months in jail. And I'm only 19. And you, and you've already made the decision that this is going to be a, my career and periodically I'm going to go to prison. Right. That's, that's my mindset at this point is like, this is going to be my career. So I, I'm literally out for 90 days and I get arrested on Memorial Day weekend for stealing a pack of Little Debbie donuts from a convenience store and possession of a controlled substance. And they wrote it up as pothead steals uh, donuts from convenience store. One of those little like one of those little funny newspaper articles. Right. But the reality was, is there was a, the cops were at this gas station and they were doing a fundraiser for 
the Special Olympics and they're cooking burgers and pumping gas and stuff like that. And it's obvious that they're cops to me. It's obvious that they're off duty. I'm not about to do anything stupid in front of the cops. I go into the store, I buy a soda, I leave the store. Well, somebody was in the store that I knew that had a grudge against me from one of the many things I've done wrong in my life up to this point. He goes out, tells the cops they saw me steal something. I'm getting in the back seat of my friend's car. And right as I close the door, the door whips open and there's a cop there. And he goes, you didn't pay for those donuts. And I look at the seat and next to me is a pack of little Debbie donuts that belonged to the owner of the car that had been in the car before I got in the car. And I'm so surprised the first words out of my mouth are they're not mine, which is probably the wrong thing to say because the cops immediately going to take that as an admission of you confessing to stealing something rather than wait for you to explain they belong to the person that owns the car. So he takes me to the front of the store. I'm telling him to run the cameras back, all that stuff. And I realized that they're about to arrest me. And I remember I got a pot pipe in my pocket. I take the pipe and I throw it in the trash can next to me because there's the front door. Then there's the, um, then there's the, the front door trash can ice chest with all the bags of ice. So I drop it in the trash can. They tell me to put my hands on the ice chest. They pat me down. 10 minutes after they're done patting me down and I'm in cuffs and they're waiting for the cruiser to come pick me up. The cop looks into the trash can and pulls out the pipe and he goes, Oh, look what I found. I watched him throw it in there. Writes the report up. Like I'm cuffed behind my back and I'm, I'm wiggling around and stuff. And he looks behind me and sees the pipe drop. Like, no, that's not what happened. You didn't see me drop that pipe. You're a liar. Right. You wouldn't have waited fucking 10 minutes. So, but they know how to write up the report. Right. They they say that it's possession of a controlled substance because there's still pot residue in it. Well, I had gone to a birthday party and it turned into a crack party about 2 a.m. And they were smoking crack out of my pot pipe. And it left an aftertaste in it. So I went and boiled the pipe on the stove to get all the residue out. And I hadn't used the pipe since, but I still knew there was probably a nook or cranny that had some residue in it. So I get arrested. They let me out on PR bail. It's Memorial Day weekend. The newspaper article comes out. I know as soon as the newspaper article comes out, there's going to be a warrant for my arrest for probation violation just for being arrested. Right. So now I'm on the run. I go on the run for two weeks. They finally catch me. As soon as I go back to my mother's house, the cops are there two minutes later. The first time I walk in the door and she still denies to this day that she didn't call the cops on me when I came home. But they were there two minutes later, you know, like it's not like they were outside. They would have stopped me before I even made it in, you know. Right. But um, so I get to the courthouse and uh, I'm, I'm getting in touch with my lawyer and I'm telling him, I'm like, I need to plead guilty to this possession of a controlled substance case before that pipe comes back from the state lab and it has cocaine residue in it. Law enforcement often questions him. Not because he's suspected of a crime, but because they find him fascinating. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crime, but when I do, it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. It never works out like that. It's bike week. They ship us all out. I miss my court date. All that crap.
So I go in front of the judge on my probation violation. I'm in front of the judge on in superior court. And um, I tell the judge, I go, um, your honor, um, I'm not saying I'm guilty of the charges I was arrested for, but I was arrested and that is a violation of my probation. And I want you to sentence me to two to five years in state prison for it. Because I know I can't do anything about the pipe. They're going to lie about the pipe. I'm going to get convicted for it. I'm going to wind up in prison anyway. I'm tired of being in the county jail. Let's just get on with it. And the judge goes, um, well, I'm not going to allow you to just go to prison just for being arrested. Um, if you did these things, then I can certainly send you to prison for it. But I'm not going to send you to prison for it if you are just saying all you did was get arrested and you're not guilty of these things. I look at my lawyer and I go, will they be able to use this against me when the pipe comes back with Coke residue when they charge me with possession of Coke? And he goes, no, they can't use this against you. And I go, in that case, your honor, yes, absolutely. The pipe was mine. All right. I'm sentencing you to two to five. A few months later, I get indicted for special felony possession of cocaine because the pot pipe had 0.01 grams of Delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol and the narcotic drug cocaine. They decided that Cocaine was a narcotic, which it isn't. A narcotic's more of a downer. Cocaine is a stimulant. That's besides the fact. So they charged me with special felony possession of cocaine. They refused to give me a concurrent sentence with the two to five I'm already doing. I tell them, I go, I'll go to trial, lose, and get a consecutive three and a half to seven right now before I'll plead guilty to uh more probation, which is what you guys wanted. I wound up having to go to trial. The jury was out for one hour. They convicted me for the pot pipe. And they give me immediate, we immediately go into sentencing. The prosecutor gets up and goes, your honor, we would like to recommend a two and a half to five year prison sentence for Mr. McCain, concurrent with the sentence he's doing right now. And my lawyer gets up and he goes, your honor, we were going to recommend the same thing. And the judge goes, I don't know why we just went through a trial and you guys couldn't negotiate this yourselves. And that's when I stand up and I go, your honor, this is the same plea I offered them two weeks before the trial started that they refused. I don't know why we went through a trial either. Fast forward five years later, getting ready to finish this sentence. Only got about a year left. So it's been about four and a half, four, four and a half years. And I'm in the law library and I'm looking up some cases and I come across a case where the Supreme Court for the state of New Hampshire ruled that the mere possession of drug paraphernalia is not a crime. And then I find a law that lists the definitions of drug paraphernalia and the criteria to determine if something is drug paraphernalia. And I discover that if residue is on the item in question, that is indicative of it being drug paraphernalia. So if you find a pot pipe that has residue in it, all you've established is that it's drug paraphernalia. And the Supreme Court has previously established that the mere possession of drug paraphernalia is not a crime. Ergo, I should not be in prison because that pipe was not illegal. That was my argument that the lawyer should have made years before that. But because the lawyer didn't make it years before that, I couldn't make that argument four years later. So I wound up getting out on parole. They did not want to let me out on parole. Um, but they did, they, it was 2009, the recession was happening. Everyone was broke. They let all kinds of people out on parole. that didn't want to get out that, that had no business getting out.
they let probably me and 20 of my friends out of prison that summer. And by the end of that summer, every single one of us was back in jail with a new charge or wanted by someone. Because we all then? got out and we were all you? had no intention on doing anything right. And we all were on the same type of mindset. Let's go get high. Let's go get drunk. Let's go make money. Let's go take shit that doesn't belong to us. Right. So, um, this is how I picked up the bank robbery. The first time I go to see my PO, I can tell that she's not trying to let me make it. You know, she, I go walking into her office. She goes, Mr. McKean, I've heard so much about you. I've been looking forward to meeting you. Have a seat. Hi, my name's Trish Thompson. She's like 6'3", looks like. I don't know. It looks like she could be a pitcher for the Red Sox, you know, high and tight fade, military personality, you know, that that type of woman. And, um, you know, and she's got two emails in front of her and she goes, I got a couple emails here from me from the state prison. The first one says that you're a proud, active member of such and such gang. And uh, this one over here says you're loud, arrogant and like to argue with authority figures. What do you have to say about that? And I go. Well, first of all, I'm not a gang member. I've never been a gang member. And I happen to have friends that are in all types of gangs, Bloods, Crips, GDs, you know, white supremacists. I, I have friends that are on all kinds of different gangs. That doesn't mean I'm in their gang. And right. she goes, well, what about the other one that you're loud, arrogant and like to argue with authority figures? I go, oh, no, that one. That, that one's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and I'm not expecting any of this. I've been out for a week. I've made a $50 restitution payment. I've filled out an entire page of places where I've gone to apply for jobs. And I've done three AA meetings and had them all signed off on. I have literally been out a week. I haven't done anything wrong, but she's already jumping down my throat. And, I are, and I'm just like, yeah, this is never going to work. And that was my mentality at the time. I was like, I can't make any bad situation work, so I'm just going to double down and make it worse. So, um, a few weeks go by, we're doing the, it's summertime, you know, it, we're doing the cookout then we're all just meeting up, having barbecues, seeing the kids, me and all my friends that are out on parole and not supposed to be hanging out with that. I'm not supposed to be hanging out with. Right. So the next thing I know, um, I start getting high. I was smoking weed all the way up until I left. And I was still dirty for weed when I got out. So I knew I was going to be dirty whenever they piss tested me. So I just never stopped smoking weed. And then I was like, well, if I'm dirty for weed and that's going to get me sent back, let me do some coke. Let me do some heroin. Let me do a little bit of this. Let me do a little bit of that. No, let me do some ecstasy, you know, and every drug I got my hands on, I started playing with. But the problem was, is the coke we were getting was completely uncut. It was some uh, Dominican, this Dominican dude we were in state prison with was having his cousins drive it up from the Bronx and it was uncut. You could touch this cocaine and it would give you a dirty urine. Like, I remember one time I went in the bathroom and broke an ounce in half to split with somebody, put it in two different bags, walked out. The next person that walked into the bathroom came walking out a minute later and was like, what the fuck, man? You're in there smoking crack. No, I went in there and split an ounce and a half. He's like, man, it smells so bad in there. It smells like you were smoking it. No, nah, that's just how strong this Coke is. And um, so I start doing this Coke, I'm smoking it, 
then I get to shooting it. And it gets to the point where the only way I can really explain it is when me and my co-defendant were in the federal courthouse getting arraigned, he goes, you know what I used to do when you would make shots of Coke for us? I'm like, what? He goes, I used to pray. I'm like, what do you mean you used to pray? He's like, I used to pray I wouldn't die. Because there was no science to the way I would mix a shot. Like a lot of people are real technical with it. I just throw some stuff in the spoon, throw some water on it. I'm not measuring anything. It's a, it's a Russian roulette every time I was making a shot of Coke. And cocaine is the one drug that I have no control over at all. It's the one drug I can never use again. The other ones I could take or leave. You know, I've been sober so long now. But cocaine is the one drug I still know I have no control over. So... Once I really start using Coke, now my thought process for making money. So what we started doing was robbing drug dealers. Of course. And I, and of course I mean, of course, that, that's a given. It's the yeah, next step. It, it's New England, you know. So, I mean, there's a lot of guns up here, but we don't have nearly the shootings that you guys got down south. You know, I don't know what it is about down south and shooting versus up here in shootings. There's just not that many shootings. So I'm me and my buddies are doing home invasions on drug dealers with like baseball bats and two by fours and stuff, you know, because how are you finding the the drug dealers? Like, how do you know this is a guy you we would? Oh, we always used inside information. So like if we're from Laconia, me and a couple of my buddies from Laconia would go to Claremont, New Hampshire. And our buddies in Claremont would tell us who sold drugs in the area. We'd go rob all them. They'd come up to Laconia. We'd tell them who sells drugs. They'd rob all them. So we that's how we were just doing it. We'd, we'd go to areas where nobody knew us, but we knew a couple people that knew everyone. And that, that was our end to figure out who we needed to rob. You okay. know? Like, um, I, I remember one time, we got this one. This is a funny one. <laughs> we get this safe, right? And my my co-defendant in the in the bank robbery case calls me up and he goes, um, hey, um, I'm at this mechanic's place. I'm about to go in and grab this safe. Can I bring it over to Johnny's house and we can crack it over there? And I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. Let me run home real quick and get some tools. Is this like in the middle of the day? No, this is the middle of the night. Okay. So he goes in and gets the safe, brings it over. I get back with the tools. It takes all of two seconds to break it open. It was one of those big white, it's white and plastic on the outsides. It's like one of the fire safes. It's got like concrete and stuff on the inside. Yeah. Real cheap, real easy to just pop open apparently. Well, the funny thing was, is when we go to get rid of it, we wrap it in a bed sheet and we put it in the car and then we go to this, um, uh, the thing the train drives over, I can't remember it for the life of me, a bridge that a train drives over, okay. a trellis. And uh, we walk up on the train tracks and we're doing the one, two, three, and we throw it into the river. Turns out that uh, that type of safe floats. It won't sink. The door was open and everything. We're watching it float right down the river. But um, once we ran out of drug dealers... Uh, that's when I started looking at banks and I'm like, well, they keep money right there. Why don't we just go in there? And I'm using some of the things I learned from being in prison, which is, uh, 
they got a top drawer, they got a bottom drawer. Bottom drawer is where most of the bills are. If you tell them not to do something, they're instructed and trained to listen to you. Their job is to get out of the get you out of the bank as quickly as possible and ensure the safety of the people that are in the bank. Right. So I knew I didn't need a gun. I knew I could do it with a note. And I knew that if I went about doing it the way I wanted to do it, I'd be in and out of a bank in 20 seconds. I'm just grabbing the money from one or two drawers. I'm in and out. And that's what I started doing. And next thing you know, we're running through 15 grand in a couple of days. It's amazing how quickly you just piss through money when it's free. You know, yeah. it's like when you're actually working for money, which I found, I didn't find this out till I got out of prison uh, this last time. But like when you actually work for money, you you're more inclined to think about what you're going to spend it on rather than just buy whatever you see in front of you because you're just going to go steal some more money. Right. So the bank robbery that we got arrested for, um, the day before the bank robbery, we had gotten off the highway and we're at a gas station and we're outside smoking a cigarette. And my co-defendant points out a little strip mall. It's behind the uh, gas station and then probably six feet down there's like a little hill so it's kind of like you can't really see it that well from the gas station and i look over and there's a bank there i think it was the first national bank of the first bank of new england or something like that new england national i, I can't remember something new england was in there and um i go you know what that's a good one we could hit that one first thing tomorrow morning and he's like yeah that's a good idea so we wind up splitting up we connect later that day and um, he sent he sends me over to this um, prostitute's house. There was this literally this building in Manchester, New Hampshire, that everyone in the building was a prostitute. They all had their own apartments, but that's where we would go to hang out. Prostitutes have never been my thing. So it was just an easy place to just kind of stay out of the way. So I stayed hanging out with one of these prostitutes all night. Literally just hanging out, doing absolutely nothing else. <laughs> and um, he went to see his girlfriend. He comes and picks me up first thing in the morning. It's like six o'clock in the morning. And this was one of those days where like everything that could go wrong goes wrong. We get back to his house, have a bowl of cereal. Next thing you know, we both fall asleep. We've been up for days. We both pass out, wake up. It's like 3.30 in the afternoon. I go on to wake my co-defendant up. I'm shaking him and everything. And he's, he's dope sick. He is so dope sick. And I'm like, he, he ain't going to be able to drive the getaway car. Right. What the fuck? So I just go and get in the shower and I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do because he needs to be not dope sick before we can go rob a bank. And I'm not dope sick. I've never been strung out on heroin in my life. I've done plenty of heroin. I've just never developed a habit for it. The first time I really abused it, I had enough minor uh, withdrawal symptoms that I decided I was never going to put myself in that situation again. So my co-defendant goes, comes running into the bathroom and he goes, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. Guato just called. We can go pick up. Guato was our dealer who we had actually robbed a few days before that <laughs> we had robbed him, And then we went and robbed a bank and my co-defendant's like, what are we going to do? We can't go get drugs now. I'm like, yeah, we can go pay him the money we ripped him off for and give him like an extra $500 for the headache. 
we did that. He started fronting us dope after that. So I get out of the shower. We drive down to Lawrence, Massachusetts. And um, the next thing you know, we're copping like, I think we picked up like five grams of heroin and we start, we immediately do some heroin. I do some just cause he's doing some and we wind up getting so high. We have to go back and get some cocaine. Well, now we need to balance out so we can go do this robbery. <laughs> we go back, get some cocaine. Now we're doing some cocaine on the way to the bank. We get to the bank. It's in Wyndham, New Hampshire. And right across the street from the bank is a restaurant and there's trees in front of the, so you can't see the restaurant's parking lot from the road. I tell my co-defendant to pull in there. He pulls in there. I go stay right here. I'll be right back. I get out of the car, start walking away. As soon as I start walking away, he starts the car and pulls it out of the parking spot. I turn around, jump back in the car. Now I'm yelling at him like, what the fuck are you doing? He's too high now. That's the problem. When he gets too high, he can't function. He starts talking to himself. He just gets weird and unpredictable. Right. Unreliable. He, exactly. He pulls out of the parking lot and now he's on the road. As soon as he gets past the strip mall and I can't see the bank, I yell at him to pull the car over. He pulls the car over and I look him right in the eye and I go, don't fucking move from this fucking spot. I'll be right fucking back. You, so you're, you're about to come out of that bank with with <laughs> with a bag of money and no getaway car. Right. You know, like I, I he know it's not a secret what we're there for. I don't know why he got out of the parking spot. So I start walking towards the bank. I walk in. I go as I go to open the front door of the bank. A woman's leaving the bank. And I go walking up to the. Uh, person at the desk and I go to hand her the note and I see immediately she does what everybody does. She gets flustered. So I start snapping my fingers. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Give me all the money in the top and bottom drawer. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And the woman next to her, I look at her and I go, you can give me all your money too. So they're getting all their money together. Well, what had happened was as I was leaving the, as I was entering the bank, the woman that was leaving the bank, the door was still open. She heard me Let's go. Give me all the money. She heard that right before the door closed, finally, as she was in the little foyer area to go out the other bank and exit. So she's on the phone to 911 while she's in the parking lot, leaving the parking lot, telling them there's a bank robbery going on. If I had waited a split second, she never would have been in the parking lot on the phone. She wouldn't have heard me start robbing the bank. I'm leaving the bank with the money and I'm walking down the sidewalk past the other stores and I get in the getaway car and now we drive away. We're driving in the wrong direction. We want to be in the other direction, but because he got out of the parking spot, we're no longer able to just pull out and take a right, leaving the restaurant to get towards the highway. We're kind of stuck going in the direction we're pointed. Well, she also sees the getaway car, the description of the car, gets the plate number and all that because she's on the phone with 911 and he parked where he parked instead of parking somewhere else. So now they immediately know what car they're looking for. This road takes us all the way around town in a very slow way. 
So we finally circle underneath the highway. We come back around from the other side and traffic starts slowing down. And as traffic starts slowing down, we see that there's a cop doing um, uh, traffic control. He looks at the car, looks at the license plate, looks at me, looks at my co-defendant and goes out in front of the car like this, like stop. My co-defendant hits the breakdown lane and takes off. We're in a Dodge Avenger. It's probably like a 98, something like that. But it was a V6 coupe. So it would get up and go when you wanted it to. This cop stops the vehicle behind them, behind us, gets in the passenger seat and does one of those right out of the movies, follow that car. The cops are on the other side of the highway. And literally, they're probably two football fields from the entrance to the uh, highway. And they're all there already because they've been robbed. And it's been a minute since it took us to circumvent this town to get back to the entrance. So now we're on 95 North. No, we're on 93 North in New Hampshire. And it's rush hour on a Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. And we're in the breakdown lane. I'm throwing the clothes I'm wearing out the window over the railing. The few money bands we have, I'm throwing them out the window. Um, now I'm taking, now I'm looking at the money and we really didn't get shit either. If we had hit the bank first thing in the morning, we would have got 15 grand out of that register because we both fell asleep. It was like $850. It was just all bad. So we're getting to the next exit, which is like, I think it's like the Londonderry exit, exit four, and traffic is at a standstill, except for us. And um, I know that they're about to spit us off the exit because we're in the breakdown lane. We have to get off the exit because of where we're at on the highway. He's like, what are we going to do? I'm like, we got to get to 93 South. We got to get going south and going to massachusetts they can't cross state lines i know this because i had just watched the movie public enemies which became my favorite movie of all time with johnny depp where they had to say, they couldn't cross state lines back then <laughs> i was gonna say that sounds like something you saw like you know it definitely that's definitely something that uh, that one of like it's like one of your stoner buddies tells you listen bro we can yeah. just go drive over the state line. They can't follow us. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then you base your entire <laughs> several yes. decisions that, yes. that carry over the rest of your life on, on the fact that your stoner buddy said he, he I know what I'm doing. Oh, well. <laughs> trust me. All right. Trust me. Everyone's you, famous you last a, words. Trust right. me. You have a vast experience in, you know, like yeah. being a bricklayer or, you know, working right. in a convenience store. And <laughs> that's your experience based on this law that doesn't exist so what happens yeah they call ahead they're waiting for you <laughs> well i know they're going to be waiting when we get off the exit so we we hit the emergency crossover right before the exit and right as we're trying to maneuver in between vehicles they try to box us in we spin out we go around them over the crossover now we're heading south there's no traffic heading south you know, nobody's heading back to Massachusetts after working in New Hampshire all week. So we wind up hitting 93 South. Our plan is to go into Massachusetts. It's only a couple exits away, like three exits away. All of a sudden, traffic starts slowing down, slowing down. We hit over into the breakdown lane. We're doing like at least 115, 120. 
all of a sudden we see the stop sticks get thrown out in front of the car. Oh, my co-defendant just at this speed, you cannot make a conscious decision to do anything other than how your body reacts when you see stop sticks get thrown in front of you at 120. And he swerves around him. It takes out the right tires on the right side of the vehicle. And it also, the left tires run over the foot of the police officer that was deploying the stop sticks because he got the string on the stop sticks stuck in his boot and he was trying to untangle it. Mm. It ripped his boot off, sent his boot flying across the highway. Um, because of where they found the boot, they actually wrote the crash report up to make it sound like we crossed two lanes of traffic and went out of our way to run this cop over. It was just, that's how far the boot flew when it ripped the boot off, when a boot got ripped off of his foot. So now we have two tires and all you can hear is, which is the wheels grinding into the pavement. And there's rubber flying up over the hood, blue smoke everywhere from burnt rubber. It's a mess. And my co-defendant's like, flipping out he throws me a gram of coke and he goes mix it now i'm mixing shots of coke while we're in the middle of a high-speed chase and still, um, are you still thinking you're gonna get away with it if you get over the state line that yeah that's still in my mind because we haven't actually made it over the state line yet so yeah. um oh the stop sticks also took out a cruiser the, the very next cruiser behind us so they the, one of the cruisers was out of the race Nice. They tried deploying stop sticks again right before we get to uh, the state line and we swerve around them. I don't know how because I had to hold the wheel for my co-defendant while he shot up and we had no traction at all. I don't know how he managed to keep us on the road as long as he did with two tires, but he did. So next thing you know, we we go around another set of stop sticks, takes out another cruiser behind us. The we get a couple exits into Massachusetts and finally um, my co-defendant, as soon as we get over the state line, he looks behind us and goes, they're still following us. Fuck, what do I do? What do I do? That's like, crazy. Yeah. I'm like, they're not supposed to. Wait, I didn't know about the hot seen, pursuit um, law where they can just radio ahead and be like, yeah, we're in hot pursuit. We're coming in. Did Did you ever see uh, Smokey and the Bandit? No. See, that's the problem. I saw Smokey and the Bandit, and I knew that during a pursuit, they can actually follow you <laughs> through multiple jurisdictions. But yeah. see, I saw Smokey and the Bandit, you didn't, and that changed right. everything. Right. All I saw, I saw Public Enemies, and their laws predate Smokey and the Bandit. That's why. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. So we get off um, in Drake at Massachusetts is when we decide to get off the highway. And I don't know, I still don't know how we got off the highway because it was one lane and there was a lot of backed up traffic. Like somehow we managed to get up on the side and go around some vehicles. And now we're on the double yellow and we're driving cars off both sides of the road because we're trying to outrun the cops. And it gets so dangerous, the cops actually stop following us. And when we realized they stopped following us, my co-defendant's like, what are we going to do? I'm like, we need to stop another vehicle and hijack their car. Yeah, so like, carjacking. That is right. the way to go. That's way Absolutely, to go. that's the way to go in this situation. We need a new car. We need to get away. He's like, well, what do I do? I go hit somebody in the rear quarter panel. It's going to slow us down because we don't have brakes because we're missing two tires. And it's also going to make them pull over. We do that. He happens to hit the one car that has a 
carload of Dominican and Puerto Rican dudes in it. Like I jump out of the the airbag hits me in the face. I jump out of the car. I start running towards the car. We're going to carjack four people get out. I immediately don't even break. Don't even miss a beat. Now I run towards the right. I'm going to hit the guardrail and hop in the river, swim across the river, the Merrimack river, which is like the biggest river up there. And uh, that's how I'm going to get away. They come right around the corner and do you still have tackle the $800? me? What do you still have the eight hundred dollars? Oh, I missed that part. So I took half the money, right? Right. And gave it to my co-defendant, and I took the other half and I rolled it up in a in a tube in a, in a tube about about this big, right? And um, I tucked it in between my butt cheeks. Is what I did with it. And it stayed there rather well for a while, at least. And um, that, that, that'll come up later. <laughs> so uh, then, so I'm right before the guardrail. The cops are still following us, so I find out. But they had slowed down. And they come around the corner. They see me. They jump out of the vehicle, tackle me. They're punching me in the back of the head. What's your name? Fuck you. Boom, boom, boom. What's your, what's your name? Fuck your mother. Boom, boom, boom. They get me all cuffed up. I don't know what's going on with my co-defendant. Uh, I found out that he got out of the car and ran in the opposite direction of the car we were supposed to carjack. I still don't know why to this day. Um, they actually tackled. They didn't tackle him. They tased him in the river for 26 seconds. It was on the taser report. Um, one of the cops that was wrestling with him in the river after the words lost his gun and his flashlight in the river. Um, they finally get us in the back of cruisers. They read me my rights and I'm like, yeah, I think I'll take the lawyer. They read him his rights and they go, we just want to know who's driving the car. He goes, I don't know what car you're talking about. So they get us to the state trooper barracks in uh, North Andover, Mass. And um, as we're walking up the stairs, I go looking at my co-defendant and he is he was 200 pounds, six foot two when he got out of prison four months earlier. He was about 150 pounds. He had been out, he was strung out when I got out a month after him. And he's soaking wet and he just has this look of devastation on his face. And I go, hey, pick. And he goes, looking at me, he's like, I go, hey, man, I don't know about you, but I had fun today. And I'm doing it mainly, I'm doing it for his sound his peace of mind but i'm also doing it for the cops because at this point in my life i hate the police kill the cops i hope they all die blah 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 you know it doesn't matter that they're the ones that are out here protecting your family while you're sitting your ass in prison because of the choices you made right so i'm getting booked and this detective comes walking in and i and it's obvious to me that he's a detective and he goes walking out back to the holding cells and I hear him screaming. He goes, you either robbed the bank or you drove the car. Which is it? And at this point I realized, well, at, this is where I'm going to find out if my co-defendant's going to be solid and tell on me or not. Cop comes walking out 30 seconds later, pissed. They bring me out to the holding cells, bring him out to book him. I'm still cuffed up. So I'm sitting on the floor of the holding cell with cuffs behind me. And this guy who's obviously a detective, he has his badge on his belt comes walking in same guy goes walking in he goes uh 
you either robbed the bank or you drove the car, which is, and I go, are you my lawyer? He's like, I'm not your lawyer. I'm like, well, I asked for a lawyer. He goes, you either robbed the bank or you drove the car, which is it? And I go, lawyer. He goes, do you know how much time you're looking at? You're looking at three class A felonies. That's 21 years in prison. And I go, apparently you can't do math, retard. That's 22 and a half years in prison. Go ahead, run that concurrent with the prison sentence I'm going to do already. Fuck you. And he storms off. We get brought to the county jail. First thing they do is strip me out. That's when the money comes back up. <laughs> they literally, they're doing the, all right, uh, bend over, cough. I do that real quick and spin. Hold on, hold on. What's that? It's just money. You know, like, like, and I say it like it's the most natural, like everyone keeps money. There. Why wouldn't there be money tucked in between my ass cheeks? And um, they take me, they put me on drug watch now. So on they what? put me in, on drug watch. Okay. So that now I got to shit. And this is something they do in prison when they think you might have drugs inside of you. Right. They will put you in a room with nothing but a toilet with a trash bag over it to collect your waste or they'll bring you a bucket to defecate in for when you say you finally need to go. So they kept me there for a few days until I finally went to the bathroom and then they let me out into the shoe. We go to court on Monday. By now they've literally just thrown me in a, in a cell and left me there. Haven't said anything to me. Wouldn't even give me toilet paper, that type of thing. You know, they're like, oh, they tried to kill a cop. Fuck them. That's that's the type of treatment you get. My co-defendant's super dope sick, so he spends his whole time in medical. They take us to court Monday, and the first lawyer that comes down and talks to us says, listen, if you waive extradition, they're going to take you back to New Hampshire today. And I'm like, all right, let's go. We get to the we get up to the courthouse, we waive extradition. They immediately take us into custody and take us to New Hampshire where they uh, book us at the police station and arraign us at court, $400,000 cash only bail. The next day they take us back to the state prison because of the notoriety. They take my co-defendant directly to shoe. My charge is criminal liability for the conduct of another for attempted second degree murder on a police officer. It's a very long charge. Yeah. So it only shows up as criminal liability when as a pending charge, which doesn't sound bad at all. But when you read the whole thing, you realize you're looking at just as much time as the guy that was arrested for attempted murder on a police officer. Right. And, um, I need to be near my co-defendant. We have to talk, obviously. We need to get our story straight so we could try to figure out how we can salvage this. Not to mention how many other cases might be coming down from all the other crap we've done in the last 90 days. But, you know, this is the worst one that we got in front of us. Let's just deal with this one. So I go out of my way to pick a fight with the first person that just looks at me wrong. And I get in a fight. I go to shoe. Now I'm in shoe. Well, they won't let me anywhere near him. Won't let us on the same. Won't let us in the same wing. So he's above me or I'm below him. And that's where they kept us until they wound up uh, indicting us. We went to the federal courthouse and that was the last time I actually was in the same room as him.
they put us in the same holding cell up until we were arraigned. And then they put us in separate holding cells. Um, when it actually came time to plead guilty, though, I had um, fired my lawyer because she wasn't doing anything. We were two weeks away from uh, we were two weeks away from picking a jury, wasn't answering my calls, wasn't responding to letters, wasn't coming to visit me. I filed a, a motion to get rid of her. And I put in there. Additionally, she is African-American and I am a white supremacist, which is not true. It was me needing a lawyer, icing on the cake, just to ensure I'm going to get a new lawyer. Uh, is that in your jacket? It, it was after the letter. <laughs> um, yeah, like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm bald because I can't grow hair on my head. I don't right. know if you can see that, but that's been going on since I was 22. <laughs> but, um... So I go into the court, I get the new lawyer. Well, in the motion I put in there that I wanted to um, have my day in court and I wanted a trial. So the U.S. attorney told the FBI to set up witness interviews. So that's what the FBI did. Because the FBI did that, I never got my third level off for acceptance of responsibility because I did not help the government save money and not having to prepare for trial because they called the FBI and they scheduled some witness interviews. Right. And, and so, I have a question for you. You were charged. So, I mean, the chase and everything, like, it, that was all kind of state, but this, this is federal. Like, you ended up in the federal system, right? Yeah, the feds indicted us for bank robbery. Everything related to the car chase, the injury to the cop, all that was calculated in the sentencing guidelines. Okay. So like the car chase was two points for reckless conduct. The injury to the police officer was four points, serious bodily injury, that type of thing. Right. When it came to my co-defendant, they gave him the official victim enhancement because he was pleading guilty to driving the getaway car. So they were able to say he drove the car because he was pleading guilty to driving the car. But what happened was, is because he pled guilty in the feds, that gave them the ammunition in state to give him all the other felonies related to the car chase. They wound up giving him a consecutive 10 to 20 for driving the getaway car in state that he's serving right now after 137 months in the feds. So, so, so his, his admitting responsibility really worked to his advantage. It, no, it did not at all. I know that. I'm joking. I, like, yeah, I, I understand like it's that. It's supposed to work. Like, look, if you if you just own up to what you did, then it'll work to your, you know, like to you, you th- they they pitch it as it will help you. It'll it's good if you own up to what you did because then you, they take pity on you and they they give you a reduction in sentence. But in his case, it w- worked to his detriment. Yeah. And and it was crazy, too, because when he was getting ready to go to trial, he went to trial on it because the best plea offer they were giving him was like 20 to 40. And um, so when he was getting ready to go to trial, I, I had told his people, I'm like, he needs to call me as a witness. Right. Because I, I would not testify that I drove the getaway car, but I would say everything else that would allow the jury to draw that conclusion. Right. I will okay. spin the story in such a way that there will not be a doubt in anyone's mind that I was driving the getaway car without incriminating myself. Right. And 
they knew what I was trying to do. They tried, they, they went out of their way to stop me from testifying. And that's exactly what happened. I was in Beaumont, Texas at the time when he was going to trial on the state charges. And, um, I never saw the courtroom. They, the judge would not let me testify. They wanted like a sworn affidavit from me about the type of things I would testify to before they would just allow me on the stand with no prior knowledge as to what I would say. Right. And his lawyer wasn't really trying too hard to get me up there either because his lawyer wasn't about to play whatever game I was trying to play. Right. So he winds up getting the consecutive 10 to 20. When it came time for me to get sentenced in the feds, um, my lawyer comes to talk to me and he tells me, he goes, uh, yeah, so I think they're looking at a Booker variance. And I go, there was nothing in the PSI about a variance. There, there was no motion from them about a variance or anything like that. He goes, yeah, but the judge, it's in the judge's discretion. Did, did so Booker I realized a weapon, no weapon. Okay. So I'm only getting two levels off for acceptance of responsibility. We're arguing the third one, but I know it's in the government's discretion. I'm probably not going to get it. And now I'm look, now I hear the word variance and I'm worried that now I'm was looking at, I think it was 105 to 125. I got 125 months, but that the 125 I got was the high end of my guidelines. But as soon as they talk, start talking variances, I'm like, I know I'm looking at 20 years tops. So I need to say something to this judge. So I get in front of this judge and my and I, I'm driving my lawyer crazy at this point. Right. Because the cop we hit is behind us. He's wearing crutches. My lawyer, before the judge gets in the courtroom, he's whispering to me. He's like, yeah, they don't know if he can go back to work or not. I'm like, he can go back to work. He's faking it loud as hell in the courtroom. I'm not doing myself any favors. The judge comes out my ass. I have a question. If your buddy, has he gone to trial? Did they say that he was the one that was driving the car at this point? Like, why is the judge? Like, I wasn't driving the vehicle. I don't know why this guy's on crutches. Like, I wasn't driving. If I wasn't driving the vehicle, why is he even here? Because he was my co-defendant. The, they're saying he was the getaway driver for the bank robbery. I robbed the bank. All this that happened afterward is is because of the bank robbery. Right, right, right. That's, right. How, they're ty- that's how they're tying it all in together. So I realize I got to say something to this judge in the form of an allocution. The judge, is, the, the lawyers are doing their tar- talking and everything. And at one point, it seems like the judge is on my side. Then I can tell he's really not on my side at all. And or why would he be at the same time? Why would he be on my side after the crap I've put some of these people through? Right. So they wind up, um, they get done talking and now it's my turn to say something. The judge gives me the opportunity to say something. At this point, my lawyer doesn't realize I'm going to say a word and he doesn't want me to say a word because the only thing I'm, I'm being a cocky 24 year old kid with a chip on his shoulder I'm just doing nothing but giving this guy grief. But I proceed to get up and I tell the judge how sorry I am, how no one was supposed to get hurt, how I have a drug problem that's never been treated. And and I pull out some crocodile tears and everything. And it was a it was a real good performance um, because I wasn't sorry at all. I was manipulating the system. And I, I know there's plenty of listeners right now that this guy's a fucking scum. 
scumbag. This guy is a, he never should have got out of prison. Um, you know, but we're getting to that. Um, I, and I, I agree with them. I deserved much more time in prison than I got. If I was still in prison right now, I would still say I, de I deserve to be there for the things that I did. Not a doubt in my mind. The judge literally tells me, he goes, I was going to give you 12 or even 14 years until I heard what you had to say. And it was because of what you had to say that I'm going to give you 125 months, which is 10 and a half years, which is less than 12 or 14 that he wanted to give me. Yeah. And at that point, I'm having to bite my tongue to keep from like busting out with like the Cheshire cat grin. <laughs> but the moment the judge was out of the courtroom i busted out laughing so hard and my lawyer he went from like he went from like oh wow this is good I, i'm I, I got a good result for my client too like like you ever see the movie primal fear <laughs> yes you, you know the look Edward on norton on, at the end, when Edward Norton finally lets him realize he's been gaming him the whole time, yeah. the look on Richard Gere's face, like, that was the look on my lawyer's face when he realized, like, the tears and all that was just an act. And a great movie. Um, I got to watch that movie again. It's a great movie. Oh, great, great. Phenomenal movie. But uh, that's how I wound up getting to the feds, you know, and, and my experience in the feds was completely different i still had to do two and a half years i'd beat up some cops in the county jail at overnight court um they they had sent us to rock the the bank robbery was out of rockingham county so before the feds picked it up we had a bunch of state arraignments probable cause hearings stuff like that and they wanted to keep taking us to overnight court we'd leave the state prison they put us in overnight court well the first time i went to overnight court I had some weed on me that I had found in the holding cell in Massachusetts that I had brought back to New Hampshire with me. So when they put me in a holding, when they put me in a cell with somebody, he's got batteries and everything. So I'm, I'm rolling a joint and I'm smoking weed. And next thing you know, the door opens. They're like, you know, I don't normally mind what happens in my jail, but when I smell reefer, I have to investigate. And I go, you know what? I don't care what happens in your jail either. And I don't know if you can recognize me or not, but my face was just all over the news. I'm going back to prison tomorrow and I don't give a fuck about you, your jail, or this fucking joint I'm smoking. Well, come come with me. I, I smoked the joint all the way down to the booking area. They put me in the booking area and that's where they leave me till the next day. Well, the next week I got a probable cause hearing. We're sitting there for the probable cause hearing. It's me, my co-defendant, and two of our friends are there. They're co-defendants on a simple assault case. They also have court. Well, my co-defendant's still dope sick, and he's banging on the window when I'm coming back from the booking area telling them he needs a cup so he can get some water. And I stop, and I look at the CEO, and I go, that man's dope sick. You need to get him some water. Yeah, yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. We don't give a fuck about you guys. They put me in the holding cell. So there's two holding cells and then a big tank. Two of them are in the tank, my co-defendant and somebody else. Uh, one of us is in the holding cell next to the tank, and I'm in the other holding cell next to that holding cell. I go looking up. I see their sprinklers, and I go, hey, you guys want some water? We can pop these sprinklers. We pop the sprinklers. They indict us for popping the sprinklers. They take us to overnight court for popping the sprinklers. I tell my two co-defendants, now I'm co-defendants with the two guys that were on the simple assault case. My co-defendant that was dope sick didn't pop the third sprinkler. Right. It was the other guy in the tank. So 
I, I'm telling them, I go, listen, I'm sick and tired of coming here to overnight court. I'm never coming to overnight court again. I'm going to cause so much of a disturbance when we get off this van. Just sit back and enjoy the show. Well, we get off the van. They take me out back, strip me out, give me my bed rail, uh, my bedroll. And I'm sitting in, I'm standing in front of the uh, desk there. And I look at the corporal and I see one of a, one of uh, my co-defendants is in a two-man room. And I go, hey, why don't you put me in there with Gilbert? We'll have a nice quiet night. We'll get along. And he goes, no, you guys ain't getting shit. You guys were assholes last time you were here. You ain't getting shit this time. And I go, well, I'm trying to be nice, but if you want me to be an asshole, I can start being an asshole right now. And I throw my bedroll down. At this point, I'm working out twice a day. I'm like, I'm 24, I'm 23 years old working out twice a day um, because it's been months since the arrest. Excuse me. I'm sitting in shoes still, so I have nothing to do other than work out and just be an asshole. Right. And so I throw the bedroll on the ground and I go to square up with the guy. Well, he's behind the desk. He literally comes running out from around the desk and kicks me with a front kick right to my midsection as I'm coming over him to hit him. I hit him on the jaw and drop him right as he kicks me in the stomach. The two guards behind me start trying to put my arms behind my back. I'm trying to shake him off. I get my right hand free right as the guy I dropped gets up again, and I hit him again, drop him again. They kick my legs out from under me. At one point, I grabbed somebody's finger and just twisted and broke it. Um, at some point in the thrashing, somebody got kicked in the ankle, and they wound up with like a sprained ankle or something. But Three of them wound up going to the hospital. Right after that, they go into the room that I wanted to go into where Gilbert was, and they literally are pushing him around because of what I just did. You're going to shave this mustache, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and they're he's, they're poking him in the chest, and he goes, hey, don't poke me in the chest anymore, and he pokes him in the chest again, and he punches the lieutenant. They pepper sprayed him unconscious. He woke up in the uh, He woke up in the shower. But because they did that to him, they didn't charge us for the assaults on the cops. And I never had to go to overnight jail again. You know, and, and that was the so win win. That, that was just the way it went. You know, like that that's any situation that I had when I was that age could be solved with violence in one way or another. Violence right. was the violence was just my belief at that time was violence and fear are more important than anything if this is the life i'm going to lead so Stay, i get to the feds federal prison getting off the bus <laughs> good, it's a good day the, the first place i go to is bloody beaumont nice now in 2012 what they had done was with bloody beaumont bloody beaumont was such a bad place to be for so many years they shut the entire prison down and shipped out 75% of the people and turned it into an FCI. Everyone that stayed there, they gave a management variable to so they could be at an FCI. They did this for several years. When I got there in 2012, they had just changed it from on January 1st of 2012 back to a USP. He built some of the nation's largest banks out of an estimated $55 million because 50 million wasn't enough and 60 million seemed excessive. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crimes, but when I do, 
it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. So I was one of the first people getting there as it becoming a USP. There's still a bunch of medium guys that are there that need to get transferred. And at, at the time, they were getting ready to shut down uh, USP Florence and turned it into a SMU. And we wound up getting a lot of people from FCI Florence uh, or uh, USP Florence to uh, USP Beaumont. And the smooth, that's where like it's like a drop the dropout gang dropout guy. No, the smooth is for the real troublemakers. You get to a USP and you still don't want to behave. You're stabbing people, cell phones, doing all the stuff they don't want you to do. They're gonna put you in the smooth, which is 23 hour a day lockdown. You get out once a day, other than that. Okay. So it's the opposite of the guys that are dropping out. Right. It's the guys that are all in. Once they invented that program, they really things really changed. You know, up until that point, you could be at a USP and stab somebody several times and be back out on the yard a couple weeks later. That's how they ran USPs then. But once they had a place to send the troublemakers to, then it became real easy to get there. You know, you get a couple hundred series shots, you get caught with a couple knives, a batch of wine, dirty air, and stuff like that. Next thing you know, you're in the smoke for nine months to a couple years it depends because you can screw everything up with one shot and have to start that program all over again yeah i was gonna say um it's funny the higher you know it it really works like the opposite of what you would think it's kind of like the you know like the the correctional officers at the camp and the low treat you like dog shit and then yeah. as they get up to the medium, they treat you a little bit better. They get to the pen and they're they're downright respectful to you. Yeah. But then it also it, it's funny because in the medium, there would be a stabbing in the yard, right? Like there's a riot or a stabbing, there's guys fighting and stabbing each other in the yard, and they would call lockdown. They'd lock you down, and the next move they'd open back up again and let everybody go. You about your business. But at the low, if there was a stabbing or a fight, you're locked down for four days. Yeah. It's like, what's the, like, that doesn't make any sense at all. But yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't work the way you would think logically this should work. Well, none of it worked the way I thought it would, because I'm leaving after having spent 18 months in jail and then a four-year prison sentence and then two and a half more waiting to get to the feds. I get there and I remember the first time I spoke to SIS getting off the bus and they they bring me in the room they're like what's your name I'm like pat mckean and they go oh yeah we've been waiting for you have a seat I'm like who are you we're like we're sis i'm like what's sis we investigate things I go oh your investigations I'm like yeah we're investigations i go i have nothing to say to you i don't want to sit down and talk to you guys i don't realize that every time you're transferred somewhere they're one of the first people you have to speak to before you go to the yard yeah it's just part of their process and he goes, I said, sit, I said, shut, I said, shut the door and sit down. And I go, no, he gets up and goes and shuts the door and I'm still standing there. And they're like, we have your whole file from New Hampshire. And I'm like, oh, great. He goes, I don't know what you did to those people. He goes, well, I know what you did to those people. He goes, well, you're not going to be doing the same stuff you did here. And the two and a half years that I was waiting to get to the feds when I was wrapping up my state time. I was just balls to the wall doing whatever I wanted. I spent a whole year in the shoe at one point 
And about eight months of that was I'm, I'm getting extracted every day. I'm fighting with the cops. I'm it, it, at one point, the lieutenant at the state prison sat me down. And he goes, in the last 90 days, you have more write-ups than anyone. You are public enemy number one. And I go, I want you to ship me out of state. If I have to stay in this state prison, because at the time I had that, I had a concurrent kidnapping case that was a state charge. And they were, they were thinking about holding me for the entire time I had that kidnapping case before they were going to let me go to the feds. What and was I was not going to. What was the kidnapping case? It was the story I told you about on the phone with the the the, set, the the kid who turned out to be 17 because the crack dealer sent them to smash the windows out of my car and we wanted to know who else was there with baseball bats. Oh, okay. They wound up charging us for that and we wound up getting, uh, I got a concurrent sentence with the feds, but the state wanted to hold on to me. I had to write to the court and say, this sentence is supposed to be concurrent with the feds. If right. they hold on to me, it's not going to count towards my federal time until I'm in federal custody. And they had to re amend the sentence so that they had to force me to go into the federal system. So I finally get to the feds and everything's different. I walk on the unit and I'm immediately put in a cell with a white guy from Texas. Um, I'm getting introduced to the leaders of the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas right off the bat because a few of them lived in my unit. And, you know, we're all we're all just getting to know each other. You know, I already made sure my paperwork was good. I had multiple copies of my PSI, my judgment commitment and my um, docket sheet in a couple different places to mail into me. So I wound up getting all my paperwork immediately. So they knew I wasn't a rat, anything like that. They just knew I was a white guy from New Hampshire. Well, I start telling stories about crimes I've committed and things like that. and the way I conduct myself in prison. And what happened was, is these guys in the feds love to just talk shit behind people's backs. They ain't going to say nothing to your face. They're just going to run their mouth behind your back. So I come walking into the unit one day and my celly sits me down and he goes, um, Hey man, some people have been talking. They don't like the way you're carrying yourself They're You're acting like you're ready to put in some work. Well, there's this chomo in the unit and you got to go smash him off the yard. And I go, there's a chomo in the unit. Yeah. That guy over there, they point out this guy that lives two doors next to me and was in the unit before I moved there. I'm like, that guy's a chomo and you guys have been living with him longer than you've been living with me. Yeah. But don't worry. We're going to send someone with you. Like I, I don't need anyone to go with me to fight someone. I don't need anybody to have my back. I went in there, I beat up the chomo, and they, they find him all beat up. He's bleeding and everything. They lock the unit down. Now they're running the cameras back to see who went in that cell and beat the dude up. They come and grab me, take me to the lieutenant's office. Right off the bat, there's like eight lieutenants in there. And the first one goes, now, before you say anything, I'd like to point out that you have some blood on your shoes. And I go, yeah. They're like, uh. So what happened? I go, he disrespected me, so I beat him up. Now, before I did this, everyone's like, well, what are you going to say when SIS asks you why you did it? Because we don't want to get locked down out here. And I go, well, if you guys don't want to get locked down, you shouldn't send people out on dummy missions to do shit in front of the cops. I'm not going to go beat somebody up in front of the cops like you guys want me to do so that we both get locked up. 
I'm going to do it and they're going to find him whenever they find him or he's going to pick himself up and go get medical attention or whatever. You know, I'm not I'm not going to do this the way you want me to do it. They're like, well, what are you going to say to SIS? I'm like, I'm not going to tell them shit. Well, you have to tell them something. We don't want to get locked down. Well, I'm going to be in shoe, so I don't really care if you guys are locked down. So I'm sitting in the lieutenant's office and they're like, what happened? I'm like, he disrespected me. He's like, how did he disrespect you? I go, well, people have been complaining that he has body odor issues. So I went up to him and I said, hey, man, this is what people are saying about you. You need some hygiene stuff. He told me to get the fuck out of your out of my face. And so I beat him up a little bit. They're like, you didn't beat him up a little bit. You beat the shit out of him. He might need surgery, blah, blah, this type of thing. And I go, they're, they're like, we know you got sent on a mission. Somebody sent you on a mission. They're trying to get me to say that I beat him up because he's a chomo. And I'm not going to say that. Right. And they're like, uh, go ahead, tell me another story. And I go, all right, well, once upon a time, Little Red Riding Hood was on her way to her grandmother's house. And get him the fuck out of here. They they were not happy with me. And two weeks later, I was back on the yard. And I'm like, this is amazing. I can get in a fight and go right back out to the yard. You know, like, I'm just another bank robber here. I'm under the fucking radar. This is amazing. There's a bunch of knuckleheads on the USP level that can draw the attention of the cops. So I start doing the things I wanted to do. I had taught myself how to draw in prison. Now I wanted to learn how to tattoo. Tattooing in a USP is legal. The COs will come in the room and watch you tattoo. Right. They'll come in the room and be like, hey, you need to put that away. The lieutenant's in the unit next door doing rounds. Don't let the lieutenant catch you. All right, cool. I learned how to make moonshine in Beaumont. Did you ever run into shine in the media in any of the mediums you were in? Yeah, and it, the, what you just said, it was funny that the um, tattoo guys would go up to the cop and be like, "Listen, man, like I got a guy coming in. I know, I, I, you know, I know not all cops are cool with it." And they, he'd be like, "Listen, fucking lieutenant comes in at like six o'clock, so have your lookout waiting for him. When he comes in, shut it down. He'll walk. He'll be in here 10, 15 minutes. You can go right. You can go all. You know, all in." But don't get me fucked up or I'll never let you do it again. They'd be like, absolutely not. And he'd, you know, and they'd tell him, get a good lookout. <laughs> like they're like, like coaxing him, you know, they're coaching him on what to do. Yeah. I, we, we had a, listen, we had a CO go to the tattoo guy in our unit, showed him a design for a tattoo that he'd kind of sketched up and asked him if he could redraw it. And he redrew it. And he used to tell the tattoo guy in my unit, I wish you could do this tattoo for me. I mean, it, listen, he was amazing because this we had a they're great tattoo artists. Oh yeah, in prison. Yeah, but I mean that's how comfortable you're right. And, and then at the medium, they're shaking you down every two or three days looking for the guns. Like it was a completely different environment. Yeah. So I can yeah. imagine at the pen, they're just trying to keep the guys in the pen from stabbing the guards, stabbing each other and stabbing the guards. That's the only thing they care about, you know, like. I, I could literally, I was making, I was coming down with moonshine batches two, three times a week in Beaumont. You know, yeah. they're always like three, four pint batches, but like, and, and for the people that are listening, I'm talking about real moonshine, like what you would see or encounter in the real world, probably even stronger because I would proof it like this. Every pull out of the batch, I would light on fire on a Q-tip because a Q-tip is going to hold the same amount of liquid every time. It's going to burn the alcohol off, and then the residue that's left over, it's just going to be a, a moist, wet Q-tip when the flame goes out. So everything that I pulled out of that batch of wine that I'm 
putting the heating element to to get the steam to distill it all if it didn't light on fire i threw it away so i'm i got stuff that just tastes like straight rubbing alcohol eight ounces is all anybody needs you know you literally just need eight ounces and for most people that's probably too much you know depending on how quickly you drink it too but I made a lot of money off of liquor in prison and everywhere I went, I always made it my goal to make the best possible. If I encountered somebody that made good liquor, I would go out of my way to make mine better, which is just a matter of not pulling as much distillate out of the batch when you're distilling, you know, but that's how I hustled. You know, I, I would run tickets. I'd, I'd take bets from people and count stamps and give them to the ticket man. Um, I spent time, I spent a lot of time uh, writing, you know, I wrote a lot of short stories when I was in prison. I did a lot of reading. I can't tell you how much reading I did, but it wasn't until I had about five years left that I was transferred to USP Terre Haute and I had had to have back surgery and I had spent a bunch of time fighting with the nursing staff and Coleman one. So after my surgery, they shipped me, I wound up eventually making it to Terre Haute because I needed to get to a care level three. I'm recovering from back surgery. Wait, I just Coleman one last time you had said you were in Beaumont. I was in Beaumont. The day I left Beaumont, I hopped off the top bunk. And I, when I hopped off the top bunk, I herniated the L5 S1 disc in my back. Uh, it was a 13.5 millimeter herniation, which means the disc moved over a half inch and slammed into the sciatic nerve root um that was just from hopping off the top bunk so when i was in coleman one and i'm needing treatment i'm literally in medical every day and i got into an argument with one of the nurses i wound up getting thrown in shoe over it and when i was in shoe they actually transferred me to the medium shoe and the medium coleman shoe was actually where i was when i had my surgery and when i initially recovered from my surgery so when I was finally good enough to get on the bus and get transferred, they sent me to Florence, Colorado, because they had changed it back to a USP from a SMU. I get to Florence, and they put me in with the general for the ABTs on the yard, which is like the highest ranking this guy did like 22 years in Texas Department of Corrections. And the day he walked out, he walked into a pair of handcuffs for a RICO case for the feds. And he picked up like another 20 years in the feds. He's my celly. Well, the white, the independent white dudes attack the ABTs because they're sick and tired of the ABTs trying to dictate what the independent white dudes do. And it turns into a whole big thing. I'm still recovering from back surgery. I'm not involved in it at all, but three people left in helicopters. Um, two of them almost died. One of them lost an ear. He had his ear bit off by a guy whose claim to fame was biting someone's ear off years earlier. And he did it again. And I always hate those types of guys that like do something really um, catastrophic to someone. Right. And then they live off it for years and years and years. And I'm thinking to myself, like, he's just talk, he's just talking. And then he bit somebody's ear off again. I was like, all right, he wasn't, he wasn't one of those guys that just talks and talks <laughs> and talks, but I wound up getting drawn in with the whole smashing the ABTs off the yard. And they wind up just shipping a bunch of random people. They wind up putting me in the hole and I'm sitting in the hole 
and I'm telling them I, I'm recovering from back surgery. I need a care level three facility thinking I'm going to wind up in Allenwood. Well, they send me to Terre Haute, which is a dropout yard. There's a bunch of gang members there that are no longer gang members. People want to kill them in their gang. That's why they're there. Rats, sex offenders, all the bad people, all the people that you don't want on a yard are there. And I'm so tired of being in shoe that I just don't care anymore because the moment I hit this yard, I can no longer go back to an active USP yard. I'm stuck on dropout yards. I can't walk onto another yard and be like, yeah, I just came from Terre Haute. They're going to try right. to kill me because the difference at, at the USP level versus the mediums and the lows is when most mediums, you can just walk up to somebody and be like, hey, everyone's decided that you can't be here anymore. You need to go up top, which means you need to go to the office. You need protective custody. Well, at a USP, that's not an option. You can't go tell somebody they need to check in. You have to smash them off the yard, which means you need to beat the holy hell out of them so that they have to go to medical or the cops find them. Or sometimes smashing them off the yard means you're literally trying to kill the person. You know, I've it never really made sense to me that people in the feds wanted to use murder weapons like knives to assault people in front of the cops just to get somebody off the yard. That's the, that's literally the mentality people have in USPs is I'm going to do an attempted murder, but it's just going to be an assault just so this person is no longer here. And usually it's because they've lost a popularity contest. Oh, that guy's the dope man. Everybody owes him money. We need to smash him off the yard. He's a piece of shit that it's it's literally losing a popularity contest. So when I get to Terra Hut, I'm like, I'm just going to chill out. I'm just going to relax. And you know what? The atmosphere is completely different. Yeah, there's drama and things, but it's not the same. You know, it's but for the most part. They just want to do their time. Right. Right. And it was a refreshing environment to be in because I've walked nothing but USP yards on my own. Every time I've had a problem and people are are trying to politic on me. I just do the same thing. Like, well, you know where I live and you know, I got the biggest knives in the unit. It is what it is. I'll be in my cell waiting for you guys. And it usually comes of nothing, you know, but there's been plenty of times when, you know, I've had to stick up for myself and I don't expect anyone else to stick up for me. You know, it's my problem that I created. I need to deal with it. And there's been many, many times where I've told gang members like, regardless of the race um it is what it is if you have a problem with it get some knives and a couple of your friends and come meet me in my cell and i learned real quick that when you have that type of attitude in a usp most people are just going to leave you alone to do your time the way you want to do it because they think you're crazy right and it's not because i was crazy it was a i'm not going to get involved in gangs I'm not going to allow somebody to dictate how I do my time or what I do while I'm doing my time. And I'm just going to stand on it. It is what it is. If it turns into a me trying to kill a couple people that are trying to kill me, I mean, it. it is what it is. This is the life I chose. And that was my mentality at the time. After I was recovering from back surgery, my mother sent me a book called Light on Yoga by BKS Iyengar. And I had asked for a yoga book because I was recovering from back surgery. I was interested in learning some stretches that would help me in the recovery process. 
And I start reading this light on yoga book and I realize immediately that there are so many other benefits to yoga. It massages your internal organs. It realigns your body. Um, it resets different parts of your body that might have tension in them. Um, it, there are spiritual applications to it where where uh, yoga turns into a spiritual experience for people. Literally, the term yoga means to bind or yoke your will to the will of God. That is what its original meaning is in Sanskrit. Well, I show the book to one of my friends, and he introduces me to somebody that I've lived in the unit with for years that I've never really spoke to. And his name was Charles James. His uh, nickname's Tank. And Tank was a leader in the Vice Lords street gang. And he had picked up a couple life sentences out of the state of Iowa. He was a state inmate and they had sent him to the feds because they couldn't control him in the state. And I come to find out that he was a child prodigy in martial arts. He was actually supposed to be in the Youth Olympics um, at one point in the 90s. Um, his original teachings were boxing and karate and things like that but when he started learning kung fu he wound up getting taken to china and he beat a master in wing chun with just the basics of wing chun that he had learned which is the style that was popularized by bruce lee whose teacher is Ip man they made all the Ip man movies out of it that's all based on the style of kung fu called wing chun and i told him that i was interested in learning and as i'm meeting this man and getting to learn more about him i found out that he had been after he beat that master in china they invited him to the shaolin temple and every school vacation and every opportunity he had after that he would go back there every opportunity he had and just pick up more knowledge and more techniques and i started training with him um and it wasn't so much that i was training with him i i started training under him you know, I told him I wanted to learn Wing Chun and he goes, well, do you want to learn how to fight or do you want to learn Kung Fu, real Kung Fu, like the soul of Kung Fu? I'm like, I want to learn the soul. And he goes, you need to stand in the Yi Ji Kim Yong Ma stance for three hours a day for a month. That is the goat stance. It is the fundamental stance in Wing Chun, but it's literally a standing meditation. And I did that for hours a day for a month before I even learned the punch or the other hands to go with the form or uh, with the style. This is also as I'm doing the yoga and now I'm incorporating meditation into all my practices because all every aspect of a yoga practice is a meditation. Every aspect of Kung Fu practice is a meditation. Standing in line at the store can be a meditation. So in the process, I'm having to learn all these different stances, all these different lineages, styles, histories, all that. And just in learning the basics and mastering the basics of the Wing Chun and the basics of Tai Chi and being able to meld those styles together, coupled with the yoga and all the other meditation, it literally rewired my brain. It rewired the way I thought about things, the way I looked at people. It, it took away my anger. Um, you know, some of the most meaningful decisions and conclusions I've come to in my life have been in a state of meditation. 
And there's not a doubt in my mind that if I hadn't spent my last five years in prison doing the, the practices I was doing and mastering the things I was mastering and learning the things that I learned, I would be dead or in prison right now. There's not a doubt in my mind because I did not mentally, the way I was thinking mentally was just completely fucked up. You know, there was no justification for the things that I was doing in life and the decisions I had made up to that point. You know, and like I, I hear a lot of people say that they don't regret going to prison because it made them who they are, you know, and it's and it's always seems like a cop out, you know, like everybody regrets losing time. I certainly regret losing time, but I also am a firm believer in fate to a certain extent not not the extent of like everything is predetermined you don't have any say so but like i i believe in seeing reading more into things than you necessarily should you know like i i knew i got less time in prison than i deserved and even when i was getting ready to get out and people are like man, you're getting out soon. What do you think? And, I, and I'm looking around. I'm like, this is how much my, my way of thinking had changed. I'm looking around and I go, the worst part is, is there's a lot of people in here that are good people that are never going to get another chance to get out. I go, that's what I think when I'm getting out. You know, my, my capacity to, to like worry and care about someone else without being selfish and things like that, all that changed and was gone. You know, like I wrote a book when I got out, it was, I published it as my father was in the hospital dying. It's called Meditation Exposed um, Tips and Tricks to Implementing Meditation into Your Daily Life. And it talks about the history of meditation, ways that science has proven that prolonged periods of time change the brain, increases gray matter, increases critical thinking skills. Um, you know, it, it certainly calms you down. It, it can adjust, you can adjust your blood pressure. All, you can do all kinds of things with meditation. But I talk about the different ways people can use meditation. You know, it's not just sitting on a floor. It's not laying down. It's not any one particular thing. There's a million different ways someone can meditate. You know, you can be standing in line at the grocery store and just go into a Wuji stance, which is just a normal shoulder width stance, arms hanging out to the side, standing up straight. But your focal point is that posture and the way you're breathing. That is a meditation. You know, I, I spent hours every day practicing different stances that not only were they meditations, but they also fundamentally changed the way your body connects to the earth. You know, they have these certain stances called circle stances where your hands are in like a circular position and they're at like a shoulder height and your feet are in like a horse stance. And you hold that stance for prolonged periods of time. And they call that welding the structure together. And the way I describe it is like, if you got a metal railing that goes up a staircase and then around like a catwalk, and then it connects and goes back down to the other side of the stairs, it's all welded together, that entire structure. If I stand at the bottom of the railing and I hit it with a hammer and you're standing upstairs all the way at the opposite end of the railing and you hold on to that railing, you will feel that vibration. Right. Because that structure is welded together. What those circle stances actually do is exercise every tendon in your body from your toes to your fingers, to your eyeballs, all the tendons in your body are connected. 
So once you've stood like that long enough and you've aligned your body properly and you're in the right meditative state is when you finally actually develop that chi flow that you hear about that a lot of people think is fake and some people know it's real because they've gone through the process, you know, but when it comes to things like martial arts and stuff like that, it really is about the personal experience. So you know, that's that, that example you gave just now. Did you come up mm -hmm. with that? You mean the welding the structure together one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say that's a good, it's a good example. I mean, not just for that, but just for, for lots of things, you know, like, um, yeah, I was going to say like, um, do you ever hear, you know, who Jordan Peterson is? No. Well, he's a, he's a professor, uh, at, uh, couple of universities in um, Canada and he does different talks and it's funny he mentions like he talks about like you know if you you want to be successful in life you want to do this like people will say you know how do I get what I want out of life and be successful and you know he and he says like he's like well you know start start making your bed in the morning you know clean up your room start there and it's like and people are like we'll we'll go how does that have anything to do with me being better at my job? And he's like, but the, but the, the point is, is that if you've kind of follow and read one of his books, it's like that basic fundamental change in that one small thing you know, reverberates throughout your entire life. So that turns into a habit and then you start doing, then you start cleaning your room. Then you start folding your clothes on time and putting things up and doing this. Before you know it, you're doing all the things at work that you're supposed to do maybe to get a better a promotion or maybe to get another job or maybe it's these little fundamental changes in your behavior at the at the basic level that you know travel throughout your entire life and change everything just by that one you know because you can't start at the yeah. top no you know you've got to start down here and and it reverberates throughout your entire life and before you know it you're getting a master's degree so you can get the job that you want so that you can get the top position so you can make the money that you want. You're better to your family. You're better to your kids. You're better to your wife. You're better. To, you know, your friendships are better. You're, and sometimes it means removing friends from your life, people that aren't good for you, people that don't care about you. I mean, but I'm saying it, I love that example. It's a great example of hitting that one small bing and it just boom goes throughout the whole thing. And you're right. If you're standing at the top, you can feel it. Like it changed. Yeah. There's no way it can't. No way you're not gonna feel that, right? And so, that's I'm where sorry, go ahead. that's where the that's where the standing meditations like that translate into the kung fu with the energy because the energy in kung fu comes from the ground and your skeletal structure. If your skeletal structure is aligned properly, you're gonna be able to make the energy go from your feet all the way up into your hands the way it's supposed to. It's going to be the most effortless way of defending yourself, and it's going to be the most stable way. When you're connected to the earth properly and your stances are right, doesn't matter if you're on one foot or not, you already have more training than 99% of the people out there. I was looking at Kung Fu originally as a way to hurt people easier because I was getting older. That was my goal is how to hurt people. And in the end, I come full circle to the point where I have no desire to hurt anyone. But not only that, my training teaches me that I can't use what I know unless I'm being attacked or somebody I care about is being attacked or someone's destroying my property. Like Until I'm actually being attacked, 
I can't use what I know because number one, I've always kind of believed in a fundamental fairness when it comes to fights, but also because that, I don't know, that's just the way they train you. So when they train you like that, it's, you're just kind of stuck with it. You know, like I've done so much meditation and breathing exercises that it doesn't matter what happens, what sort of chaos I'm going through. The first thing my body does without me having to think about it is take a deep breath. I don't even have to think about it. It just happens. You know, I don't, I don't lose my cool and, and lose my temper anymore. It's, it's just not possible. And one of the beautiful things about it was in the process, I wound up doing a pretty broad study on theology. And what I really liked about the Taoists that I can really relate to is that their fundamental belief system is you're born, you're pure. Everything about your life is pure. As you grow older, things happen to you in life that condition you to behave and react and live in different ways. And the only way to revert back to that childlike innocence is through the golden elixir. And the golden elixir is literally meditation. Meditation will refine out all the garbage you've been through. You know, they have things like Buddhist, Buddhist psychology, which is literally you are you go see somebody that's trained in Buddhist psychology and they walk you through meditative processes to help you deal with the garbage you've been through. And, you know, that's really why I wrote the book. I wanted to find I wanted to reach people in a way that could show them there's a million different ways that you can meditate and that you can implement it into your life. And it doesn't have to be a, oh, it's five o'clock. I need to go meditate for 45 minutes. It could be something you turn into your 45 minute car ride to work every day. You know, you you figure out a meditation that works sitting in the car while driving that ultimately can help you rewire your brain and your thought process or maybe some of the trauma you've been through or whatever, you know. But that's that's really why I wrote that book. And it was one of those books that had to be written. Like, I couldn't do anything. It took me two weeks to write it. It's 166 pages. It's an ebook. It's on, and thanks to you, it's on paperback and hardcover now as well. Um, but uh, I, it, it took me two weeks to write it. And I've always been a fast typer. I was one of those guys in, in prison that was always like, hey, man, I'll give you a couple stamps. Type this email for me real quick. All right, what do you want to type? Oh, just read it. No, just just speak. I'll I'll type as you as you talk. Right. You know, so but go ahead. Um, when you did you get a copy of the hardcover? I mean, or of the um, so you got it on soft cover and hardcover. Did you get a copy? I ordered two copies. I had one sent to my mother um, and I had the other one sent to me. I'm still waiting on mine. She got her heart. She got her hardcover yesterday. I just ordered it Friday. Yeah, yeah, it comes right up. I was gonna say, did you get the uh, sample copy or? or no, I just all... bought one. Okay, because yeah, you know what they'll let you do is like before you publish it, they'll let you order. I think up to like five sample copies. It says sample on it, but it's only like three or four bucks. So you get it, like they'll mail it out right away. Like you'll get it within very quickly, within a day or two, and you get it, and that way you can read through it to make sure everything's lined up and looks right, and then you can make any changes. And order another sample copy, and then of course once you're happy with it, then you can publish it, and you can also oh. order um, author copies. So you yeah, you that's what I. 
that's what I ordered was author copies because I think it cost me like Six I think it cost me like fifteen bucks for a hardcover and a soft cover for author copies with shipping and handling and everything. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, but then you know you can put it up on the on you know you put it up for fifteen or twenty bucks, you know. So yeah, I always yeah. order author copies and you know because people ask me for signed copies and stuff, so I'll sign a copy and and mail it to them. Um, but uh, yeah, that's good. That's good. I don't have any hard covers. All mine are soft covers. I need to oh, do yeah? the hard cover. I need to do the hard cover. Yeah, it's just like a why why do I have to redesign everything every time? Like why can't it just be Yeah. Yeah, yeah just do it like that for the other ones. <laughs> I know. Every every yeah, every cover is different. Yeah. Well, it actually cool. helped out that you put me onto that because it like I told you, I was waiting for my PO to come when we were talking on the phone last week. Well, when she came, I, I, between me talking to you and her coming, I got on KDP to try to start the process with the paperbacks and the hardcover. And I realized I no longer have a PDF version of my book. Well, would you erase it? I had scrubbed my Chromebook because it wasn't running right. And I had forgot about it because I was thinking it was saved under Google Docs. I don't know where it went on Google Docs. It disappeared because I wrote it on Google Docs and then made a PDF, save as PDF and said, saved it like that. Well, my PO had showed up. She had had COVID last year and I had sent her a PDF copy of my book. So she was able to send it back to me. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yep. All right. Good times. Yeah. So, all right. So what do you, uh, so what's going on now? Do you have anything else? I mean, Right now, I work full time. I'm a cook. I'm trying okay. to save up so I can open a tattoo shop. You know, I could probably open a tattoo shop with five grand, but I think I'm going to wait and spend like 15 or 20 when I do it so yeah. I can really do it right. Well, and you'd it'd be nice to have, you know, some reserves in case, you know, it takes a little bit to take off or something. Yeah, that's definitely what I wanted to get into, you know. Um, but it's a process like it's been two and a half years and I'm still living paycheck to paycheck because it's always something. There's a no, car repair or a car accident. I've had two car accidents since I've been out. I told I totaled a 2012 Infinity. Oh, this is a good story for you. This is a quick one. In October, I get my first auto loan and I get a 2012 Infinity G25X. Now I am fully self-employed doing Uber, Lyft and DoorDash. Don't have a boss. Loving it. I get in a car accident January 30th. Couldn't even tell you how the car accident happened. It was it was that quick. I, I think both of us were too close to the double yellow lines and we just brushed up against each other. But it was enough to pop the front tire, do some damage to the front quarter panel. The, the driver's side door didn't want to open right. Airbags went off, all that. This is the same day that I've taken my drug class and done my appointments with my provider for the, my drug therapy. So I've already got like two and a half hours of drug therapy stuff that I had to do for the month under my belt. I'm driving around doing Uber. It's one thirty in the afternoon when the accident happens, this cop shows up, proceeds to do a field sobriety test on me. He hasn't searched me. He hasn't searched my vehicle. 
I don't use drugs. I don't drink and drive. I don't know what he's looking for. But I forgot to tell him about my back injury before he asked me if there's any, if I have any physical limitations. Because I didn't realize I was about to go through a field sobriety test. Well, now he's telling me to stand on one leg. He's telling me to stand with my feet together. And I'm trying to explain to him, like, I can't physically stand with my feet perfectly together like this. I can't do that. My knees touch. It, it makes me, it, it, in order for me to lock my legs like that, it just doesn't work for the way my body's built. Right. And then he wants me to stand on one leg. Well, I go into Golden Rooster stands on one leg, which looks nothing like the way he wants me to stand on one leg. Golden Rooster stands on one leg is a Tai Chi stance. Yeah. It's it's like the it's like you're like this, one hand like this, your knee, the knee below it's up. So you got one knee at like a 90 degree angle and um one hand up and you're balanced and, and it's a meditation. You, you hold that for like five minutes on each leg as part of your stance practice. I do that to prove that I'm perfectly balanced and I'm not on drugs. As soon as I put my leg down, he arrests me for OUI. Take me to the station, do another field sobriety test. They refuse a urine sample that I offered them. They take my blood work, find out that it's 90 days for it to come back from the state lab. The only thing I have in my system is Suboxone that's prescribed to me. So then I had to, I get out on bail. I have to tell my PO, fortunately, me and my PO have a good working relationship. You know, she knows I'm very honest and, and forthcoming and that I don't do drugs. Plus, I pissed in a cup for her the next day after my arrest and there was no opiates in it. That was the best part. They said I was on opiates. I haven't done an opiate in 10 years. I couldn't even tell you where to buy an opiate in this town. When my father died, I took all the narcotics and and put all the liquids in coffee grounds, crushed up the pills and put all the pills in the coffee grounds like they told me to and threw the coffee grounds out. So. Then I go to my arraignment, the charges get thrown out because the lab work still isn't back. And now I'm going to court uh, next week for a reconsideration hearing because I want it dropped with prejudice. I don't want this dropped without prejudice so they can come back and be like, he had Suboxone in his system. We want to press charges. Right. You know, and I actually had to go to my place where I get my Suboxone, take my medication in front of them and then sit there for two hours or three hours while they observed me to make sure I wasn't like nodding out in my chair and stuff. It was, it was not a good experience to say the least. Okay. <laughs> well, you do have some, just one thing after another. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully that works out well. Oh, I know it will. I know what's in my system and what isn't in my system. I know I'll be all set on the OUI. <laughs> um, all right. Are we good? All right. Yeah. I'll um once again the book is Meditation Exposed by P. James McKean. And yeah, I'll, I'll, put, I'll send you the link for it. I was gonna say, yeah, put uh, send me the link for it. We'll put it in the description. All right. Uh, so people just go to the description box and click on it. Hey, I appreciate you guys watching. If you like the video, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button so you get or once you are subscribed. And hit the hit the um hit the bell so you get notified of videos like this. Uh, also, um, leave me a comment in the comment section, share the video if you so desire and do me a favor. And I wrote a bunch of true crime books while I was incarcerated, including my memoir. So do me a favor and check out the trailers.
Using forgeries and bogus identities, Matthew B. Cox, one of the most ingenious conmen in history, built America's biggest banks out of millions. Despite numerous encounters with bank security, state, and federal authorities, Cox narrowly, and quite luckily, avoided capture for years. Eventually, he topped the U.S. Secret Service's most wanted list and led the U.S. Marshals, FBI, and Secret Service on a three-year chase while jet-setting around the world with his attractive female accomplices. Cox has been declared one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time by CNBC's American Greed. Bloomberg Businessweek called him the mortgage industry's worst nightmare, while Dateline NBC described Cox as a gifted forger and silver-tongued liar. Playboy magazine proclaimed his scam was real estate fraud, and he was the best. Shark in the Housing Pool is Cox's exhilarating first-person account of his stranger-than-fiction story. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Bent is the story of John J. Boziak's phenomenal life of crime. Inked from head to toe, with an addiction to strippers and fast Cadillacs, Boziak was not your typical computer geek. He was, however, one of the most cunning scammers, counterfeiters, identity thieves, and escape artists alive, and a major thorn in the side of the U.S. Secret Service as they fought a war on cybercrime. With a savant-like ability to circumvent banking security and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, Boziak made millions of dollars in the international cyber underworld with the help of the Chinese and the Russians. Then, leaving nothing but a John Doe warrant and a cleaned-out bank account in his wake, he vanished. Boziak's stranger-than-fiction tale of ingenious scams and impossible escapes, of brazen run-ins with the law and secret desires to straighten out and settle down, makes his story a true crime con game that will keep you guessing. Bent. How a homeless teen became one of the cybercrime industry's most prolific counterfeiters. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Buried by the U.S. government and ignored by the national media, this is the story they don't want you to know. When Frank Amadeo met with President George W. Bush at the White House to discuss NATO operations in Afghanistan, no one knew that he'd already embezzled nearly $200 million from the federal government, money he intended to use to bankroll his plan to take over the world. From Amadeo's global headquarters in the shadow of Florida's Disney World, with a nearly inexhaustible supply of the Internal Revenue Service's funds, Amadeo acquired multiple businesses, amassing a mega conglomerate. Driven by his delusions of world conquest, he negotiated the purchase of a squadron of American fighter jets and the controlling interest in a former Soviet ICBM factory. He began working to build the largest private militia on the planet, over one million Africans strong. Simultaneously, Amadeo hired an international black ops force to orchestrate a coup in the Congo while plotting to take over several small Eastern European countries. The most disturbing part of it all is, had the U.S. government not thwarted his plans, he might have just pulled it off. It's insanity. The bizarre, true story of a bipolar megalomaniac's insane plan for total world domination. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Pierre Rossini, in the 1990s, was a 20-something-year-old Los Angeles-based drug trafficker of ecstasy and ice. 
He and his associates drove luxury European supercars, lived in Beverly Hills penthouses, and dated Playboy models while dodging federal indictments. Then, two FBI officers with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force entered the picture. Dirty agents willing to fix cases and identify informants. Suddenly, two of Rossini's associates, confidential informants working with federal law enforcement, were murdered. Everyone pointed to Rossini. As his co-defendants prepared for trial, U.S. Attorney Robert Mueller sat down to debrief Rossini at Leavenworth Penitentiary, and another story emerged. A tale of FBI corruption and complicity in murder. You see, Pierre Rossini knew something that no one else knew. The truth. And Robert Mueller and the federal government have been covering it up to this very day. Devil Exposed. A twisted tale of drug trafficking, corruption, and murder in the City of Angels. Available on Amazon and Audible. Bailout is a psychological true crime thriller that pits a narcissistic conman against an egotistical pathological liar. Marcus Shrinker, the money manager who attempted to fake his own death during the 2008 financial crisis, is about to be released from prison and he's ready to talk. He's ready to tell you the story no one's heard. Shrinker sits down with true crime writer Matthew B. Cox, a fellow inmate serving time for bank fraud. Shrinker lays out the details. The disgruntled clients who persecuted him for unanticipated market losses, the affair that ruined his marriage, and the treachery of his scorned wife, the woman who framed him for securities fraud, leaving him no choice but to make a bogus distress call and plunge from his multi-million dollar private aircraft in the dead of night. The $11.1 million in life insurance, the missing $1.5 million in gold. The fact is, Shrinker wants you to think he's innocent. The problem is, Cox knows Shrinker's a pathological liar and his story's a fabrication. As Cox subtly coaxes, cajoles, and yes, cons Shrinker into revealing his deceptions, his stranger-than-fiction life of lies slowly unravels. This is the story Shrinker didn't want you to know. Bailout, The Life and Lies of Marcus Shrinker. Available now on Barnes & Noble, Etsy, and Audible. Matthew B. Cox is a con man, incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for a variety of bank fraud-related scams. Despite not having a drug problem, Cox inexplicably ends up in the prison's residential drug abuse program, known as RDAP. A drug program in name only, RDAP is an invasive behavior modification therapy specifically designed to correct the cognitive thinking errors associated with criminal behavior. The program is a non-fiction dark comedy which chronicles Cox's side-splitting journey. This first-person account is a fascinating glimpse at the survivor-like atmosphere inside of the government-sponsored rehabilitation unit. While navigating the treachery of his backstabbing peers, Cox simultaneously manipulates prison policies and the bumbling staff every step of the way. The Program How a Conman Survived the Federal Bureau of Prisons' Cult of RDAP Available now on Amazon and Audible. If you saw anything you like, links to all the books are in the description box.